if Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's <Yeah. laughs> Okay, guys, welcome back to the America Show, coming at you with an extra episode. We're going to release this one next month, but since I accidentally released both of our episodes that were scheduled for the vacation uh, last week, we decided we'd have, uh, throw this one out as episode 611, and uh, so you guys don't have an extra week off so you can find another show and then leave us forever. Yeah. <laughs> We got Grand Pussy Magnet Dunlop over here. Yeah, yeah, just petting my cat and, you know, like the evil genius that I am. Yeah. Oh, this was a good one, too. This is a good one. It's an interesting uh, chat about, uh, you know, the Oka standoff, land claims, the Indian Act, and, and you know, sort of awakening the government to this stuff. I think it's an important, I don't really know much about it compared compared to you and stuff. I remember it happening as a kid, but. You seem to think that had a real tur- sort of a turning point on the way the government and the Indians were uh, dealing with things, right? Well, they haven't really fulfilled the duty to consult since then, as near as I can tell. Uh, and they inter- introduced the Firearms Act a couple years later. Oh, with, interesting. Without consulting the Indians, who might have had something to say about that, considering they had just had to defend their land with firearms. Right. Uh, and there was a couple fatalities. There was a couple fatalities, yeah. I mean, and that was in the nineties. When if shit like this happens today, it's going to get out of control fast. I mean, right. I think we're probably ripe for that right now. Um, I mean, I don't know where the general pulse of the Canadian Indians are. So you know, I, I don't. I talked to a few. I, I know that a bunch are reading my stuff, but they don't like reply. So I, I'm not actively in conversation with him but i know when we talked about he seems to agree kyle seems to agree so i do talk to some guys that agree and uh, it does seem like right now the federal government at least and the provincial governments as well but the federal government at least it seems to be extremely tepid around uh the indian thing right now i mean i've been testing that personally with some laws and i mean i was with my indian buddy hunting on the weekend and he's like well of course they're not gonna fuck with you for your handgun dude they don't even fuck with the indians when they block a railroad for a month or something like that right because there's i think there's a real fear from the canadian government that we might be you know worse than the truckers well they they've also got themselves in problems with the woke the, there's an overlap here there's a there's a venn diagram where there's a there's an overlap in the middle where the woke and sort of like us like sort of you know, independent media would kind of agree <laughs> on some things, right? So they, well, the government's kind of stuck right now because they've got themselves tied up with all this wokeness, which means they can't really probably do what they want to do because it's going to look real bad. 
And all that aside, they just won't be able to quell our insurrection if it happens. They won't be able to stop it. You know, if you get a million Indians in Canada, is about 3% of the population. There's a lot less than the truckers that went to Canada. And they're, I'm not saying that the support is there, but, you know, if I'm just talking in actual numbers. Yeah. Um, they're spread out coast to coast. They've got major infrastructure running through all of their land that, you know, that they can cripple quickly. Yeah. And it's going to be pretty hard if, if, uh, if a couple hundred thousand Indians show up in Ottawa, it's going to be pretty hard to call them Nazis. Yeah. It's going to be pretty hard to paint them as anything that puts public support against them. It's going to be right. pretty hard to put pit and it's a, the, um, a device of their own making. But if, you know, a half a million Indians in Canada say enough is enough, they've got a problem on their hands. And my sense is that, you know, how you mentioned about the the temperature of the, you're not sure about it. My sense is it's divided like every every other sort of group these days. It's probably polarized like a lot of people. Well, it was of, unanimous against C-21. Unanimous. Against C-21. The wow. new handgun legislation, new firearms legislation. is well, 100% being rejected by every chief in Canada. That's interesting. There might be some that don't feel like that personally, but and and that that we're not hearing about. But the Association of First Nations Chiefs has all got together and said, "No, no, 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 no." I mean, my wow. personal thing is that I think Indians are are close. I think we can negotiate an end of the Indian Act in my lifetime, and I think uh, we can do something about just that. You know, I think that we are that sort of wild card that they don't know what to do with in Canada. We've seen what happened when the truckers tried to do it. They were able to take care of that with bank accounts. Like, I just don't think that they can close Indians bank accounts without a huge backlash of Canada. You know, like it was, they managed to quell the truckers. I don't even know how they did that, but like you said, that was probably closer to 50, 50, you know, it was probably a pretty even divide or at least close enough that it's hard to tell. Whereas, I don't know, man. Even if oh, that's did, that's where the don't agree with the Indians, they're not going to say it. Probably. But that's where the wokeness comes. Pretend they're going that that they do. Yeah, yeah. and then, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's where the wokeness gets in on our favor. Is that they they got to pretend that they agree with that. They, there's got to be some virtue signaling in there, which will which will stop them from and I'm doing what they would have done before. I said I wasn't trying to stoke that fire. Personally. You did when. Well, I'm, I mean, that's what my whole publication is about. Right. It's about getting all of the bands across Canada, at least getting information from one source. And I'm not saying that I should be the source, but at least I'm not fucking the state. And uh, there doesn't seem to be anything else in Canada doing it. And if there is, I haven't seen it. And if they're the ones that are like the APTN network and stuff like that, that shit's all funded by the government, man. It's all funded by the government. So there's a bunch of shit they're not going to say. So I'm just going to keep. Sorry, what what network is that? The AP yeah, Aboriginal people's television network, I think. Is oh, called. oh. <laughs> right. I don't, uh, That's I mean, I don't you know where you get it. I don't have cable or anything like that, but I mean, I just don't feel like there's any institutions in Canada that are not getting money from the government that are trying to run any sort of publications. If there is, I could be ignorant of them. But, uh, I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And I hand-selected all the chiefs and council members' emails off the internet. It took fucking weeks yeah, to get them onto that mailing list. And it seems to have got a good reception. 
And dude, the amount of fucking chiefs or you know council members that I get replying to my emails that have never fucking heard of the information I'm sending them is a wow. Whoa, what? Yeah. So let's just let's just mention what you're talking about. You're talking about uh, a Canadian shame dot substack dot com, which is also called uh, Indigenous Opinions, right? So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's the one. Most uh, it's got you know it's all Indian stuff. So if you guys want to check it out, if you want to support all that stuff, be great. Speaking of support, support the show. GrandAmerica.ca slash support. Uh, we can't do this without you guys. We do our best to try and get all these interviews and stuff out. Hope we're adding some value to your life. Hopefully, you can add some value to our life. Best. Way I think to do Kyle that. Kyle Delisle was on this show too, yes. right? Yeah, our buddy Kyle Delisle, who's also a huge part of Indigenous Opinions. Um, that's kind of a, a joint effort in some ways with him. He's been doing a lot of the creation stories, and he's been sending me a lot of resources. Uh, so yeah, I would say he is a big part of that, and he's a big part of this interview. Uh, support the show, gramerica.ca slash support. Head out, check out our other podcast, gramericaoutlaw.ca. You got a bio for Bud? Uh, no, I don't. No. no, no bio. But I mean, he, we kind of get into all that in the show. There's kind of a weird intro because like I said, we were going to start another podcast a while ago all about all this stuff. But, it, you know, it quickly just became, it, A, it was going to be hard to get a lot of interviews. But seemingly because even now through Indigenous Opinions, I'm having trouble getting anyone to be willing to come on and do a print interview with me. Um, I don't know if it's a distrust of the media thing or if it's just that people feel like they don't know enough to come on and talk about it, which could be the case. Oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah, it could be a bit of both. Yeah. Emails from people that should know this shit that are running fucking bands in Canada and they don't. And it's kind of disheartening. Well, there's a couple people we, we should have on. I've been, uh, somebody's got me a couple names of some people that are sort of pushing back against this undrip thing as well. This UN declaration. We should probably have them on too. Yeah, I'd be into all that. I'd be into all that. I tried to get the main chief in Canada on, and she just flat out said no. So, <laughs> but I mean, I get it. People might not like my style, even if they do agree with my message. I'm probably a little over the top, but whatever. Fuck them. Yeah. If they can't take a joke. Yeah. Everyone that uh, ends up pushing the ball over the hill has to be a little over the top, I think. Yeah. All right, you got anything else? We get out of here. I gotta That's get it. Let's road. do it. Yeah, have a good trip. America. All right, guys, enjoy the chat with uh, Bud Morris and Kyle and Kyle Delano. episode of the Indian in the Room podcast where myself, Darren Grimes, Kyle Delisle, and Graham, I probably butchered your last name, Kyle, sorry. Yeah, no problem. It's Delil. Delil. 
uh, are going to, you know, we've decided Kyle and I met each other, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago now. We met each other just a few months ago. I mean, we've been interacting on the internet and stuff like that for a lot longer, but we finally met each other and got to hang out for a week there uh, down in Washington a while ago, uh, last May. And since then, we've been sort of back and forth and talking about this, uh, the indigenous situation in Canada. We kind of both come from, uh, we're both, we're both in uh, status Indians, as we're called in Canada. And we come from very different backgrounds where Kyle's spent uh, his whole life or most of it on the reserve. I've been quite the opposite. I was raised off the reserve, away from the culture, and I'm just now getting back into it. Uh, at 40. And uh, so we're, we're kind of coming at it from different angles. I know Kyle was part of the protest back in the 90s and the blockades and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to hear all that come out. Whereas I was sort of ignorant to all this. And uh, I'm, I'm coming back at it at 40 so that I can teach it to my kids. And, and, uh, and it's an important topic right now. We were sort of discussing how we were going to approach it. And we've decided the best way is to just uh, go across across Canada and talk to as many elders, survivors, knowledge keepers, professionals. I mean, whoever we can talk to, to get as much of this knowledge down and into a, 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 a digital format before um, it gets too far gone. Um, so we've got, we've got Bud today who's going to join us. Before we get to him, we'll, Kyle, I'll, I suppose I'll let you say a few words. And of course, we've got Graham Dunlop, who's along for the ride as uh, as a complete outsider. He's my co-host on the Grimerica show. He's my business partner and all sorts of things. And he's um, he's compassionate to the cause, and he just wants to learn. So he's going to come along, and he can sort of offer that that questions and insight from someone who's coming at it from the. Um, Ignorance, maybe? From the ignorance of the, I guess we could say, the typical settler who's just been raised in, in Canadian lore and, and propaganda and everything else, and where it's just sort of, you know, it's all coming open to him at the same time, whereas uh, a few of us kind of knew a lot of this has been going on for a while. So I'll hand it off to you for a minute there, Kyle, and then uh, I'll let you introduce Bud since you guys have a bit of a history together. Yeah, okay, like I said, uh, my name's Kyle Lil. So, uh, Mohawk Indian from the Kahnawake, uh Reserve, or as we like to call it, the Mohawk Territory of Kahnawake, which is just south of Montreal. Uh, I was born and raised and lived in Kahnawake for most of my life. The only time I didn't was when I served six years in the United States Marine Corps. Um, then when I, once I got out of the Marines, I, I came back home and was pretty much here for the rest of the time. Um, I happened to leave right during the 1990 protest, where I know where we'll be talking with Bud. Bud was quite involved with that as well. And kind of like you, I, I, even though I was on reserve for most of my life, I kind of got away from our traditional ways and the culture and the language. And only in the past two years, really, have I beginning to reconnect with it. And to the point now where I'm you know, researching a book right now to connect the Iroquois uh, legends, or well, other people call us here, we call ourselves the Haudenosaunee. So those uh, myths and stories that we have and reconnecting them back to the stars, which uh, we lost that knowledge. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research into our myths and legends, and uh, as well, you know, reading a lot of uh, Graham Hancock and watching Randall Carlson videos, which really got me into the, you know, the Younger Dryas uh, 
boundary uh, cataclysm and researching our creation story and seeing how that accurately portrays that what happened during that time. Um, but other than that, for most of my life, uh, for, for most of my professional life, I was I worked in economic development with Bud. Uh, Bud and I were both in the Kahnawaga Economic Development Commission, or as we called it, Dawudun Yazakta. Uh, Bud was a CEO for 17 years, I believe, Bud. You know, that correct? 17 years, and then he handed it uh, off to me, and I became the CEO. I was CEO for a couple of years, and uh, I've now left the organization. Um, but, yeah, Bud and I had to uh, work side by side for almost 20 years together. So, and that's why as one of the first guests, uh, I know you and I, Darren, we've been talking a lot, our initial conversation started around the Indian act and Bud is probably one of the people I know best that knows the Indian act inside and out uh, a lot better than I do. I, I don't think I've actually ever read it. Uh, maybe just parts of it. So, uh, I'll hand it off to Bud if you want, want to introduce yourself and talk about your grand experience that you have. Thank you, Kyle. Pleasure to be here, uh, Darren Graham. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Bud Morris, Mohawk uh, from Kahnawake. I've been here uh, most of my life. Been, um, I've had a, a variety of uh, uh, professions, I guess. Uh, I used to be a, an iron worker at one time. Uh, I studied uh, to be a teacher at McGill University, but uh, dropped out to uh, uh, pursue uh, a career in politics and uh, you know, was an elected chief for two terms, four years with the Mohawk Council of Benawage. Uh Was an executive director for the Mohawks of Benawage for seven years after my term of, of uh, being a chief was ended. And uh, then I went on to uh, be the executive director for the Lower Indian Band out in British Columbia in Central Ontario. Uh, I left there, uh, went to work for the federal government as a director general for the Aboriginal Relations Office, office in the uh, Human Resource Development section of the Government of Canada. And then I was recruited to come back to Gunawage to uh, head up the Gunawage uh, Economic Development Commission, where I'm still employed. Uh, I'm no longer, as Kyle said, the chief executive officer. I'm the chief uh, operations officer now. Um, but I've had a fairly extensive experience uh, dealing with uh, a variety of topical uh, issues uh, surrounding Aboriginal people, uh, Aboriginal rights. Uh, it goes way back uh, before my uh, political career. I was, uh, I guess you could say, uh, a local activist uh, in our community, uh, trying to assert uh, uh, and protect our rights here in Vanuage. Uh And so I, I'm very familiar with uh, uh, certain aspects of human life. Uh, probably one of the few people that, uh, that I know <laughs> who's been charged with the legal possession of alcohol. Uh, I had a, a case of 12 beers in my house. <laughs> and uh, I was, that beer was seized uh, and I was charged with... Uh, illegal possession of alcohol under the Indian Act, and I had to pay a fine. Um, so there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, aspects to the Act and how it impacts uh, our, our lives as uh, only people, as Aboriginal people, and uh, certainly uh, uh, I would enjoy an opportunity to discuss some of those with you. 
What year was that when you were charged with uh, illegal possession of alcohol? I think it was 1976. So was that was that not amended until '85? That that part? Um, no, it was subsequent to that. Uh, alcohol was prohibited up until I think 1993. So and is that sorry? Would that have been permitted? Uh, prohibited to all Indians or just on reserves at that point? No, uh, a general prohibition. It was, uh, was still... Refused access to uh, to various bars. So a lot of people were uh, off reserves. You try to go to a bar. If they didn't like you, they, they'd say, oh, you can't let you in. You can't serve you. It's illegal. You're Indian. Uh, that was just uh, the way things uh, used to roll back then. So we used to find places where uh, Indians were welcome. And uh, we, were, we were served alcohol. And, uh, in 1995, I think, uh, we had a two-year uh, gap where we had an opportunity of either uh, passing legislation locally to um, prohibit the sale of alcohol and replacement of the Indian Act or, uh, in absence of such local legislation, uh, the provincial regulations would apply, meaning that... Uh, it would be a provincial jurisdiction on reserve regarding the sale of alcohol. So they eliminated that part of the act that says that it's illegal to sell alcohol. They left it to each uh, community to decide whether they wanted to continue the prohibition or uh, if you chose to accept alcohol, then you had to accept provincial jurisdiction. Uh, Ganawagi did uh, a different thing. Uh, it uh, exercise what it considered its Aboriginal right to uh, regulate the sale of alcohol and keep the province out of, out of the uh, out of the territory. But it, it's not necessarily a, a legal instrument that they use. Uh, it hasn't been tested yet. But, uh, you'd have to go all the way back to uh, Section 35.1 of the Constitution Act of Canada, which has that Aboriginal rights and treaty rights are hereby recognized and affirmed. <clears throat> well, Aboriginal right is not informed. It's subject, it's an empty box. And, and slowly but surely, uh, since the since the patriation of the Constitution in 1982, uh, it's been the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, followed by certain legislation from the government of Canada, that's filling in the empty box as well as self-government uh, negotiations and agreements. Um, we would rely on the fact that, you know, pre-European contact, which is the test for Aboriginal rights, uh, certainly we didn't have alcohol on the reserve, uh, so we didn't regulate it, so we can't claim an Aboriginal right to regulate alcohol pre-contact, but we can say that we had a regulated society, that we had local governments that were in charge of uh, all manner of things, and, and they regulated uh, certain things. And that is where we, our rights to re regulate the sale of alcohol is sent from, an, an Aboriginal right to govern ourselves, to self-government. Are those the two sort of biggest take or so those, Are those the two biggest problems um, left from the Act today, or the self-governance, which, which sort of takes in a lot right that, that could go everywhere from alcohol to child services to 
and all the way down the line to who decides, you know, who's a member of the band, who decides whose status, who's not. Um, and the other one I think is probably land. Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's some other hidden ones in there still that are still major factors? Well, I mean, there's the, there's the legal framework and then there's the, uh, philosophy of the government. Well, let's take a, a you know, a short walk back. Kyle, Kyle's going to laugh because he knows I like funny long stories. <laughs> um, the Prime Minister of the day, John Donald, in uh, 1887, said the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. And that's been the attitude of the government for over 100 years. And in fact, it's really only been um, in the last five years, I would say, that um, there's been a change in the government's viewpoint. And Trudeau uh, famously said that we want to establish nation-nation uh, relationships with Aboriginal people. Of course, that hasn't happened. But it's a signal. It's a step forward. I mean, we're, we're you know, over 20 years past, 25 years past the uh, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which had, you know, hundreds of recommendations on what the government can do, what people can do to uh, equalize uh, society so that Aboriginal people are, are full beneficiaries. Uh, and that's really the end story, is that there's a huge inequity in Canada in the wealth distribution or the distribution of Canada's wealth. Uh, most of it is still owned by Aboriginal people. Hasn't been ceded, hasn't been treated, uh, hasn't been given up, wasn't conquered, but it's been taken. Um, either through uh, the dominant society aspect or through uh, its uh, legal instruments like eminent domain. Uh, but those lands and the resources belong to the Aboriginal people, and that's what they're fighting for, as well as the rights to govern themselves. So it's a long and complicated history, I and mean, there's certainly subsets of all kinds of things that you can draw, you know, some, some insights on the 60s group, uh, which was the result of uh, Canada saying, all right, uh, child welfare is no longer the responsibility of Canada, and explicitly said it's the responsibility of the provinces. And that was that was the province of saying, okay, we're going to go and check, make sure all the Indians are being probably taken care of. If we don't think they are, we're going to take them out of the house and we're going to put them somewhere else. Uh, it wasn't much different from the uh, residential school system, where pretty much the same thing happened. Kids were torn from their families and, uh, without the consent of the parents enough in many cases. So the legacy is... You know, as I said, it's legislative in one sense. The Indian Act is an archaic piece of legislation, and it, and it, it certainly uh, has its history rooted in an assimilationist viewpoint or philosophy. Uh, today, I don't think there's any real thoughts that uh, the assimilation approach is going to work. Uh, the 1969 white paper uh, that uh, then Prime Minister Trudeau uh, was supporting and uh, written, or at least introduced by Jean Chrétien, 
who was the Minister of Indian Affairs back in 1969, uh, and subsequently, of course, became Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, that was dismissed uh, out of hand as, as being totally unacceptable for Aboriginal people. We wanted our own identity. We wanted to practice our own rights and culture, and we wanted our share of the wealth. And we still do. Nothing has changed in that regard. And it's taken Canada well over 100 years to wake up and acknowledge that the assimilationist approach policy has failed. It has not worked, and it will not work. So they have to try something different. And they have to find some way of creating equity. Uh, that's the challenge. How do you... How... I'm not quite sure how to frame it, but how how can that sort of, or how is it, what do you think is causing the change in the last, because I agree it is only five years. I mean, you have the Truth and Reconcili Reconciliation Report in 2015, you have Harper's sort of, I mean, we've gotten the apologies over the last two decades, but we haven't really seen any real change. I would, I would almost argue until this month is the first now you've been involved in it a lot longer than I I've been paying attention. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, but I definitely agree on not, nothing's no movement until like 2016, 2017. And then now it seems like this callous nation in Saskatchewan getting now, I haven't even looked in the particulars of it completely on the, if the dots are dotted and the T's are crossed on them getting their child control of their child welfare back. But I mean, in, in my lifetime, that's sort of the, the, the first major thing I've seen towards, you know, real reconciliation. Well, the, the process has certainly been slow and, you know, what, what has woken up the, uh, the politicians and the public in general I think it's been a you know a slow but steady stream of revelations, uh, and you can go back. Uh, well, we won't go that far now. But let, let's start with uh, you know uh, the uh, issue of uh, inequity or or discrimination against Indian Made it to the Supreme Court on I think two occasions. MacGyver, um, who's actually from the Lower Nickel Indian Man, uh, she went to the Supreme Court and won. Uh, and there was another court case, uh, and Mary Tuax early. I don't know if she made it to the Supreme Court, but she certainly was a, an activist in that regard, fighting for Aboriginal rights for Indian women who lost their status through marriage. And that, I mean, you go back and you look at what had happened, uh, all the, there was a, you know, pure uh, Western European mindset in terms of how they related with Aboriginal people and created legislation around them. All the rights flowed through the men. The women had no rights. Zero. So actually, the woman didn't get the right to run in band council elections until, I don't know when. But. So it's been a very slow progression of events that have become public and, and one after the other. And then you go, you fast forward to uh, uh, the, the Royal Commission, which was an outcome actually from the 1990 OCA crisis. Uh, 1990 was a revelation for a lot of non-Native people 
and the government in particular, when they finally realized that they couldn't subjugate by force Aboriginal people. And they started to realize that if they didn't change the way they did business, Aboriginal people could cripple Canada. And they threatened to do that. Um, one of my uh, old friends, uh, former uh, chief in Gunawage, uh, I served with him, uh, Billy Two Rivers, uh, said, we only have to take one foot out of every uh, railroad in the country and uh, cripple their economy. <laughs> and of course, that actually was done in certain cases. Uh, during 1990, there, was, there were blockades everywhere. Um, and it wasn't just in Gunawage. There was a blockade out in D.C. There was a blockade out in... Uh, those things were starting to, I think, wake people up. Start to understand that you know we have an issue here. Kind of, if you look at the parallel, and I'm not certainly equating this. I don't want to get on, in any trouble and, and say that our our situation as Aboriginal people is the same as the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. But there's there's some parallels there that, that can be drawn. And it's been a long process for, for the black people in, in the United States to get, you know, equity and equality. And they're still not there. Uh, and we're not there. And past that, you get to, you know, the uh, more recent developments with uh, the graves, um, um, uh, well, not, not, not bodies, but they don't want to dig them up, but the announcements of hundreds, and there's probably thousands uh, of, of uh, unmarked graves uh, of indigenous people across Canada and the United States, too. Uh, they certainly, uh, they had residential schools as well. Uh, my uncle, actually, uh, granduncle, went to Carlisle uh, Indian School in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was an eye-opener for a lot of people. Uh, everybody was trying to bury that issue under the rug. Uh, indigenous women had been getting murdered and had gone missing for a long, long time. This is not new. We've known it, but nobody paid attention to it. And all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's reality. And people are saying they're shocked. How could this happen? How could we all... Indians to be treated like that. And the fact is, they're still being treated like that. So, I don't want to use, you know, the, the, the terminology that popular today, uh, a woke culture. Uh, I think it's stronger than that. I think people are actually saying, there's an injustice here. This is Canada. And we got to fix this injustice. And on the world stage, that's certainly true. Uh, Canada has a hard time criticizing China for uh, breaches of human rights when its history is very, very clouded with abuses as well. There was a cartoon in one of the Chinese uh, papers last week that showed Trudeau sitting on a pile of skulls. Uh, the, the, I mean, it's satirical, but the reality is, is that that's Canada's history. And they've been ashamed of it, and they've tried to hide it for a long time. And now the truth is is coming. Hey, but you, you touched on the, um, the 1990 blockade. Um, 
Maybe you can just go into a, a bit of detail what exactly that was for people, some of our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Um, in 1990, there was uh, a golf course development plan in uh, our sister community of Benisadage, which is about 35, 40 miles from here, from where I live, across the river. And um, they, it was on a, a pine forest, and pine trees are very symbolic in our, in our culture, uh, the symbol of, of peace. Uh, it's where all the weapons of war amongst our warring nations prior to our confederation buried their weapons under the great tree of peace and over the white pine. On top of the white pine sits an eagle who will warn of danger. So in this forest of white pines, there was a developer planning on putting an additional nine-hole golf course to add to the existing nine-hole golf course. And he had the support of the neighboring municipality, Polka. And um, the, the defenders of the land uh, decided that, that that was not acceptable. Uh, there was a burial ground there as well. And, you know, they said, this is just not going to happen. Uh, so they, the developer got uh, an injunction to stop the blockade because they were physically being prevented from, from doing any work there. And uh, the Indians uh, over here just said, no, we're not going to, we're not moving. We're not going to listen to your injunction. We're not going to honor it. Uh, so the police uh, were called in uh, on force, heavily armed, and tried to dismantle the blockade, or what that was their intent. And uh, there were shots fired on both sides. Uh, nobody knows who fired the first one. And nobody knows who killed uh, Corporal O'Mate, who was uh, a provincial police officer uh, with Quebec. Uh, he was struck by a bullet. Nobody knows uh, who shot him. But they, of course, blame uh, the Mohawks. And that sparked uh, a huge uh, confrontation. Ultimately, uh, after uh, so many days, I forget how many uh, days before the army was called in to uh, deal with the Mohawks. As a, uh, Governor of Quebec, uh, Barassa at the time, uh, the premier, he, he uh, requested uh, the aid to the civil power um, from Prime Minister Mul Brian Mulroney. Mulroney agreed and sent to Quebec under the civil jurisdiction of Quebec, the Canadian Army, uh, with uh, about 4,000 soldiers, uh, which was actually more than they had in the uh, subsequent war in Iraq. Uh, Canada had a more, more presence here. Uh, they had some uh, uh, people uh, with uh, 76 millimeter cannons, machine guns, uh, they had a, a Navy ship, uh, uh, I think it was an intelligence ship, well, I didn't see any guns on it, but uh, it, it was, a, it was a, you know, a big issue, an 87-day standoff. Uh, Mercy Bridge was closed, um, and Mercy Bridge is one of the major links uh, between the South Shore and uh, Metropolitan Montreal, uh, one of four major bridges. 
So it was, it was causing a huge inconvenience. Uh, a lot of people were non-natives were complaining and they wanted the bridge open and they were trying to force the issue. Uh, eventually, uh, the Canadian Army uh, uh, flew in uh, Canadian soldiers, my helicopter, Chinook helicopters, uh, which are basically uh, troop carriers, and they landed in, in Gunawaga on, on an island, uh, if not inhabited. And their plan was to search the island for weapons. That was their excuse, that they heard there was weapons, or they had intelligence that weapons were buried there, which was not true. And they uh, planned to march through Gunawage to demonstrate that they had asserted uh, jurisdiction and authority. Uh, they got it wrong. Uh, they were met by uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, Mohawk people, men, women, uh, younger people, older people, um, and they fought hand-to-hand. I was, I witnessed the whole thing. I was right there. I, I saw one guy uh, grab a soldier's rifle and punch him in the face. Uh, uh, shots were fired but uh, by, by the army, but uh, they're not at anybody. I think warning shots. Uh, tear gas uh, was uh, fired. And that's nasty stuff, tear gas. And the problem was that. Um, it was it was a quite uh, a scene, and uh, Alanis Obamswin, I think, uh, made a film. She has certain. Uh, actually, I was helping her. <laughs> she was trying to get away from the tear gas, and she had a bunch of equipment. And, uh, anyway. but, uh, the end of the story is that Anna realized that, uh, and Quebec, that we were very very serious about defending our our rights and our land. And that we weren't going to back down, even in the face of the army. We didn't care. We were going to defend them. And if it came to, you know, fighting hand-to-hand, we are going to fight hand-to-hand. If it came to firing guns, we would fire guns. Um, and that was a, a real awakening for the government. Subsequent to that, interestingly, uh, the army had developed plans to uh, invade Gunawagi. Uh, by air, by rail, and by water, and or and by land too. Anyway, <laughs> so and they got leaked uh, the plans, and they denied it, of course. Um, but it came from the Department of National Defense, so I, I think it's probably true. So they they were, you know, very unhappy that they were unable to subjugate uh, the Mohawksaganawage and Ganasadage. Uh, with the uh, Canadian Army, and they figured they, they needed to send a lesson, a message, to all the Aboriginal people in Canada that well, this is not going to be tolerated. We're going to put Canadian control, Quebec control, over the Mohawks, and we're not going to have any civil disobedience ever again. Uh, that, of course, is not how it ended up. Kanawagi is uh, pretty much a self-governing uh, community. Uh, if the people haven't been here, even though it doesn't have the recognition from a legislative perspective of what it does by Canada or, or Quebec, there are uh, certainly ongoing uh, demonstrations of our jurisdiction. 
Uh, gaming is one of them. Uh, we have our own uh, gaming law. Uh, we regulate uh, internet gaming as well as land-based gaming. Uh, contrary to what the criminal code says, contrary to what Quebec says we can do, and contrary to what Canada says we can do. Uh, but they haven't been able to stop us. And that's the reality. So our, I think the, the end message is that force does not work against us. So if force doesn't work, then we have to find another way, another route to harmonize our relationships. And that, you know, this is a conflict of jurisdictions, which they've never acknowledged. From our perspective, that's what it is. It's a conflict of jurisdictions. We have ours, they have theirs. They're in conflict. They think they can use, you know, the, their dominate, dominating power to subjugate us, and we've proven that's not going to happen. Then uh, there's societies all over uh, the world that have proven the same thing. Take the Afghan people. Uh, they've been in war for hundreds of years. I think about 10 countries or more have tried to subjugate them and hasn't worked yet. Well, the United States just pulled out, uh, or is pulling out now. Uh, so, what is the route? Uh, and there has to be some dialogue, obviously. There has to be some uh, acknowledgement that uh, Aboriginal people have rights that have not been recognized by the government. And they need to be recognized, and they need to be uh, done in a way that uh, make it, the two societies can coexist in, in peace. And for that to happen, we have to have equity. There has to be an equal distribution of Canada as well. Otherwise, it won't work. I mean, that's interesting to think about. If you look at the historical timeline, that's like 12 months after Tiananmen Square. And I mean, how, how, how fucking close is that? To just, I mean, you're really talking at that point, you're talking about the discipline of people with guns. You're, you're sort of past the top down thing is when you've got shots fired and you've got confrontation like that, it really only takes a couple of shots in the wrong direction before, you know, everyone's fired up and that whole thing ends a whole lot differently, which is sort of, I mean, you look at it that way, you know, there's just another sort of comparison between China and Canada there where, you know, we're marching citizens on protesters too. We're marching the army on protesters here with guns and all that same stuff. But, you know, no one really talks about that because I guess because our, luckily our troops were disciplined enough or their troops, however you want to, however you want to, how to label them. But luckily they were, they were to their credit, which I, which is tough to give in this situation, but but it seems like a sort of end to the end to the to the Mohawks as well that that situation didn't escalate into something a whole lot worse than it could have. Well, absolutely, uh, it could have been what that. I mean, behind the scenes, there was a lot of things going on. Uh, we were trying to get the Red Cross uh, to come in on a provisional basis. In other words, if if we had that blood that. Uh, we need to have an evacuation center. We need a triage and all that kind of stuff. So we called the Red Cross, and Red Cross said, we need a one-mile no-fire zone before we'll agree to come in. 
we looked at each other and we said, we, sorry, we can't guarantee that. Um, but we couldn't get the Red Cross to agree in the event that it would have been a, uh, a major bloodbath. Uh, we couldn't get food in. I mean, we had to smuggle food in. Uh, and, and Canada denies this, of course, but they were, uh, and Quebec denies them, but they were provincial police and the Canadian Army were part and parcel of that whole blockade to try and starve us all. I had a conversation with um, my uh, one of my friends who was uh, actually a famous lawyer, and I think he's famous now, uh, James O'Reilly. Uh, he's very supportive of uh, Aboriginal rights. And uh, he had uh, an insight into Barassa's uh, thinking. So I called him. I said, uh, Jim, I said, uh, we need to get food in here. I said, we, you know, it's getting, getting pretty bad. Uh, is there any way you could use your contacts to find out if they would let us bring food in? So he says, all right, let me uh, make a couple calls and get back to you. So he calls me back about a couple hours later. And this is in July, late July. And he says, uh, Bud, he goes, I think you better start planting. <laughs> I said, Jim, it's too late to plant. Uh, we're never going to get a harvest in. He goes, well, you ain't going to get food in either. Well, of course we did. We smuggled it. We had a whole network of people supporting us uh, on natives, very appreciative of, of their help. Um, but it, it was still a, you know, a huge challenge. We had uh, a woman who was uh, hemorrhaging. Uh, she was giving birth and she started to hemorrhage. And they, the ambulance uh, was stopped at uh, the blockade on their end, uh, which was manned by Search Aid of Quebec, the police. And uh, We'll call them uh, vigilantes, I guess, for lack of a better term. And they wouldn't let the ambulance through until they verified that they, we actually had a woman in the back hemorrhaging. My wife, at the time, was, was uh, going into labor, and she thought uh, she was going to give birth uh, imminently. And my brother... Uh, tried to take her across in, in, his, uh, in his car, and uh, he was turned away. It ended up being a, a false alarm. She didn't give birth then, but uh, these were the types of things that were happening. Uh, mm. Certainly, uh, human rights abuses, clearly. Uh, so yeah, Canada's got uh, some... some uh, uh, reconciling to do with, with its history when it starts to criticize other other uh, nations and their treatment of their minority people. Yeah, I remember the uh, I was seventeen at the time. I just I just graduated high school, and my mom came home from work. She was working a night shift. That she's a nurse at the hospital here in Gunawaga, and she woke me and my dad up and said, "Get out there to the front line. Something's going on." And uh, my dad and I were at the survival school blockade, and we had the radio going, and that's when we heard the firing. It was happening live, so we were already there on, on the front line. And uh, so I, th I think I was there maybe one or two weeks before I had to get smuggled out uh, in order to go to Marine Corps boot camp. Um, 
And at first I wanted to stay, of course, but you know, my mom was like, no, you have to go get trained so you can help us next time this, this happens again. And, uh, yeah, it, w- it was a very, um, traumatic event crossing by boat, uh, the St. Lawrence river ending up in Lachine. And there's a huge protest going on, uh, with police turning on their sirens, pointing the rifles at us. Uh, I mean, we're all unarmed. And uh, then I ended up getting integ- uh, interrogated by two SQ officers as well, you know, and uh, asked me what kind of weapons they had, and I wouldn't say a word. So they got they got mad at me and threatened to make sure that I would never uh, go to Marine Corps boot camp. They wouldn't allow it, and it was like, you have no say over that, so whatever. Uh, but I remember this whole boot camp con- uh, constantly... Uh, receiving letters from my, my parents, you know, saying how the situation was, where they were out of food, they've been eating the same pizza now for like three or four days, uh, you know, really just uh, on rations. Uh, and my dad was at the island too, I believe he got he got tear gas as well. And, he, and again, tear gas the second time when there's a big fight, remember, uh, by Glenn Delrones with the lights there. There was mm-hmm. another uh, confrontation there and they got tear gas again. It's like, wherever my dad went, he got tear gas, so... <laughs> Fun times. Yeah. It's certainly uh, an experience that uh, many of us uh, remember very, quite well and, and distinctly. Uh, you kind of don't forget when you have a 50 caliber machine gun pointed right at you. Uh, that, I told Kyle that story before. But they pointed at us first. I was bringing in a, a group of Oneida chiefs who were trying to mediate in Manasadagi to bring an end to the, uh, to the crisis. And we called ahead, called the army and told them we were bringing in United chiefs to uh, mediate. And uh, we didn't get clearance to go, but the chiefs are, were going anyway. So we got stopped at a checkpoint, which was manned by two SQ officers and two uh, army personnel. The army personnel were in an APC and I had a 50 caliber machine gun. And when we showed up, uh, they swung that machine gun right at us. After about an hour or half hour of discussion uh, between uh, the SQ, and they had reinforcements brought in right away, uh, they, I couldn't understand what they were saying. I couldn't hear them very well. But it was clearly a, a disagreement between the Army and the SQ. And slowly, that machine gunner turned his machine gun away from us and towards the SQ. <laughs> I remember that one. And the, the rest of them left. So they left only two there. What do you think? Because you've been, you've been there for, you know, um, sort of 40 years plus or ish looking at this. I mean, 30 years already, 31 years uh, this summer since the, since that incident. Um, what, what, what do you think, let's start with, what do you think the biggest thing, uh, what do you think? Okay. Let's do three of them. We'll start with, what do you think the most culturally, um, destructive single, if you had to pick one part of the Indian act that was most destructive to culture, what would you pick? There's so many, it's hard to pick. I mean, you know, you could look at 
trying to destroy the matrilineal uh, society in various communities, ours being one, um, that had a big effect. So let me explain that a little bit. So basically what, what you had was Indian women who were marrying non-native lost their, their status. And then you had Indian men marrying non-native women, and those non-native women gained status. So the Indian woman had to leave the reserve, and then non-Indian women came to the reserve. And that changed the whole culture, the whole dynamic that was going on. It, it was, I'm not saying those non-Indian women were bad people at all. But it, they weren't familiar with, with our ways and, and how we do things and their roles and our roles. There's a distribution of roles in our society. And uh, it really disrupted for us. Uh, I had a disrupting factor, uh, influence on, on where we're at today. So that, that's certainly a big one. Uh, in other places, it may be, I think it's different. Um, the loss of their economics uh, certainly uh, would be a huge one. So you're living off the land. Uh, you got no welfare. You have no need for social uh, society to, to support you because the community is living uh, self-sufficiently. If somebody is not able to, to produce uh, uh, food, their help, the, you know, Everything, everybody works together. And that whole notion of uh, collective, uh, collectivism uh, was re trying to be re replaced by force through economic uh, subjugation. So you can't leave the reserve without a permit. That was one. You can't sell your goods unless you have a permit. And if the Indian agent doesn't like you, you ain't going to give you a permit. Well, here you are. You, one day, your, your community is totally self-sufficient. And then the next day, you can't, you can't support yourself. And you'll have a whole set of consequences after that where Indian people become marginalized in society, in the economic uh, well-being. They're not well economically. Uh, and then the land issue, of course, is part and parcel of that. So you end up, as uh, my friend used to say, putting us on post postage stamp reserves, little pieces of land that we can't support ourselves on anymore. Uh, you know, we went from being able to hunt, fish, grow for our food. Uh, and now we don't have any of those rights and we don't have enough land to do it. And you can't leave the reserve, by the way. If you do leave the reserve, we're going to think about enfranchising you so you can come become a Canadian. Um, I mean, I'm simplifying the, the whole sequence of events, obviously, but I think those would be probably uh, that the economic one would probably be a big one for most Aboriginal people across Canada. Uh, 
and for Kahnawake, not as much, but certainly, um, I think uh, it was still a consideration. Uh, we've been a little bit more uh, atypical, I, I would say. Um, they tried, the government tried to uh, encourage, well, didn't try, it did encourage uh, an agricultural community. And there's not enough good land here. We're, we're, they gave us, well, they gave us, they left us swamp. And there's not enough good agricultural land to support the whole community. So our people went uh, find work elsewhere. Most of them went to the United States. Uh, denying work. They found good paying jobs. Uh, they didn't ask for a permit. They just went. Uh, and they brought back uh, cash. And that's how our community survived for, for the better part of uh, you know, almost uh, 100 years uh, until we were able to develop other economic opportunities. So they destroyed your economy. And then one of the solutions you talked about was bringing back or, or having equity of Canada's wealth, it would be like one of the ultimate solutions. What, what does that look like? Like, what, what do you mean by Canada's wealth in that regard? Well, there's different uh, ways of, of looking at it. Uh, my perspective is that the resources that Canada has gotten rich on uh, are ours for the most part. And there needs to be a discussion about how those resources should benefit not only non-natives, but also the owners of those resources. Uh, New Zealand has, uh, I think, uh, an example where they uh, had a uh, distribution of, uh, of resources to, to the Maori uh, on, based on GDP. Uh, I think Australia did have a similar uh, situation. Well, maybe I'm getting mixed up. Maybe but- Alaska, too? Yeah, I think Alaska has some sort of situation with resources, specifically money from oil, gold, natural gas. A certain percentage of it goes to the historic tribes. Yeah. From from my perspective, the simplest way to recognize start recognize that land is not conceded, and we need to compensate. Find a way of compensating us for that lost land. What does that look like? Well, let's sit down and talk about it. We've got to have the discussion. It seems like they've, uh, you know, you mentioned that they sort of swept it under the, or you mentioned something like that. And I feel like they've just been sweeping it under the rug for so long now. And I feel like they got tied up with the definition of not on purpose, but it could be just a distraction of, of genocide. You know, they they talked about, oh, this definition of genocide or this definition of genocide. And it seems like that's just been glossed over a lot that, and maybe that's sort of held up resolution yeah i mean do you have any thoughts on that yeah i uh i was a an advocate of uh, that term uh being used to describe the historical actions and to a certain extent current actions that canada and, and the provinces were were uh taking against aboriginal people um and I met a few academics who disagreed with that. Some didn't, but uh, most of them 
disagree. Today, I think the conversation has evolved. Um, cultural genocide is being recognized as genocide. So when you and there's a definition by uh, through the UN that describes that. So when you take away their uh, a culture, basically you're killing the society. Uh, you may leave uh, some a life there, but you've taken everything else away, and that's genocide. At, at least as far as the United Nations is concerned. Uh, so I think that was really the intent. I mean, I, to me, it's clear as day. I mean, I originally quote from John McDonald: "Just get rid of the Indian." Uh, the residential schools were, this, you know, they're trying to beat the Indian out of, out of everybody. Uh, and the Americans would uh, kill, kill the Indian, save the man. That was the American model. Um, but Canada has a hard time, and I understand that. You know, they they prided themselves on being, you know, a very peaceful, prosperous country that very much favors equality of rights for everybody, a very tolerant society. But the history is, is not, not written that way from our perspective as it relates to Aboriginal people. Uh, you're right. They have swept a lot of it on their own. Now, the, the, the thinking, and I, I support this, is that history has to be revisited. And it has to be rewritten with a broader viewpoint that incorporates Aboriginal people, their viewpoints, their experiences. I mean, I, this is just a small example, but it's still going on today in various ways. So when I went to school, my history book said that when the French fought a war against the Indians, it was a victory. And when the Indians won, it was a massacre. And actually, in the history book, we weren't referred to as Indians, we were referred to as the Savages, the Savages. So, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> and the history books have not really been uh, updated properly. And there's been a, a good debate about that uh, across the country about the need to do that. But the problem is, uh, you know, you've got a multiple set of, of uh, jurisdictions here. Uh, the provinces, of course, have responsibility for, for education off reserve. Uh, and then you have school boards in, in Quebec. Uh, you have school boards elsewhere as well. Who's in charge of the curriculum? In, in Quebec, it's the government that's in charge of curriculum. Uh, so, you know, these things take time. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have multiple uh, stakeholders that want to say it this way, they want to say it that way. And, you know, can we all agree on one set of facts? Uh, probably not. Um, but maybe we can agree that we can agree to disagree. We can present multiple viewpoints. Uh, but again, the dialogue has to start. The, the recognition of the history how it's been presented, how, what happened has to be acknowledged by, by the governments, by society in general, so that we can move forward. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in this fog mirror of, of conflict um, for another hundred years.
Is there is there a, a movement at all or a sentiment that that you'd like to get back to where, like you mentioned, the collectivism as- aspect or like a self sufficient community? You know, is there an, is there a, a sentiment to get back to that at some point or without the government? I mean, the government the government's kind of mess. I mean, it's it's messing up left, right, and center, and not just about this issue. I mean, it's they're just they're just they're overreaching everywhere. So is there is there a, like you mentioned the land part and, and I understand what you mean about the equity of Canada's wealth and the resources and all that. But is there, is there also a sentiment to, to getting land back, like to actually making the land the way it should be? Well, certainly there has to be some, uh, uh, land, uh, returned. Um, Yeah. That's, that's absolutely necessary in order for Aboriginal people to feel whole again. Yeah. Uh, we, we're under no illusions that we're going to be made completely whole. I mean, nobody's expecting uh, whole towns and cities to, to get up and move. Well, I want to just interject quick with the, the quick stat from this year on Canadian land um, ownership. As of 2021, January, 89% of all the land in Canada is owned by the government, either provincial or federal. Another 7% of that is owned by mega corporations. So you're down to 4 to 5% of all the land in Canada, less than 5%. Is owned by private citizens. So that's one thing I want to make abundantly clear is that we're not coming for your land. When we say we want our land back, it's not the farmer down the road. It's not the, it's not, there's plenty of land in Canada that is owned by the government right now to make, to make things work. It's not, you're not taking your neighbor's house. We're not, that, that doesn't have to look like that because I see some people get their back up about that. So I just wanted to interject that almost 90% of the land in Canada is currently owned by the government in some way, shape, or form. And, and that's, that's where the reservations are, right? All the reservations are currently owned in by the, the 90%, federal government. They're, right? they're owned by the federal government, yes. Yeah. yeah, so how do we do that? Again, you know, there's been acknowledgement that land has not been properly uh, Seated, been taken without our consent. They have to acknowledge that and find it. Now they're going to say, "Yeah, we have the Aboriginal uh, Comprehensive Land Claims Process." Oh, give me a break. That that is so laboriously slow and inefficient and non-productive that you'd be hard pressed to find uh, any support for that process amongst any sizable group of Aboriginal people. It's it's just a whitewash. It's just it's just like you know. Here, there's a process here. If you've got grievances, take your land grievances there. And 25, 30 years later, uh, maybe you'll get a settlement. But don't forget, the money that we forward to you to fight the land grievance is going to be deducted from your settlement. So you might end up nothing. That's, that's part of, you know, that's been the approach. Uh, Canada has been very uh, uh, agey uh, on trying to keep the resources away from Aboriginal people. 
Um, and that has to stop. That dynamic, that attitude, that philosophy, the legislation surrounding it has to change. Well, they, but they did give us National Aboriginal Day. <laughs> Everyone else gets a month. <laughs> in Quebec, yeah, we got a day. They, they don't want to make that a statutory holiday in Quebec. Well, I think it's all, I mean, I really feel like we've got uh, enough momentum this time to hopefully make a difference with it. I mean, we are the fastest growing demographic in in Canada right now is, is status Indians, which is refreshing because when you look at the residential schools, which is, which is a terrible thing and people think that ends, but it doesn't, they sort of mandatory attendance ends in the sixties. And then you have the sixties scoop where admittedly by the government, at least 20,000 Aboriginal kids are scooped up and uh, sent all over North America. And I mean, some people are putting that number up at over a hundred thousand. And and then you've got that continuing. So I just want to quickly touch on the numbers as of 2016. Although Aboriginal children accounted for only 7.7% of all children aged 0 to 4, they account for one half, over one half of all children in foster care in that age group. So we've still got um, this situation going on where, where Indian kids are being removed uh, from their their cultures, their families, their communities and, and being, I mean, I think they're trying to pay a little more attention to that these days on making sure they're put in culturally, culturally acceptable homes. But I mean, I'm in the middle of doing a book on this kind of stuff right now. So I'm kind of digging through a bunch of it. And I mean, I was looking at pictures today from the sixties in the, I forget the name of the paper, the star Phoenix was one of them and the Regina something or other was another one where they've got these little uh, indigenous kids and it's like an advertisement to buy a pet where it's like, you know, Lucy, you know, she's a chubby three-year-old or three-week-old and she's a happy baby and she can be yours if you just contact the number. And it's just one after another, after another, after another. And supposedly these, are, these things are, are these, these articles are published all over North America at those times because you hear the stories from the survivors who were sent to Louisiana, to Texas, to... I was reading one story from a fellow who was sent to, down to Texas someplace, and for most of his life, he thought he was a Mexican. And uh, it's, it's just sort of, sort of disgusting. So before we, before we wrap it up, I guess I'll, I'll ask either of my co-hosts if they have any more, any more questions. I don't think I have any right now at the top of my head, but I think we will most likely need to have Bud back again on a future episode. We barely touched on the Indian Act, so. so well, Grant, if you have any other yeah. directions. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe I'd like to touch next time on, I, it's hard to formulate as a question, um, but it would be about about the the PC culture nowadays and if it's, if it's beneficial or damaging to the movement. Um, and I don't know if that's something we want to address now, but uh, like you mentioned, woke, the woke part, um, and I know it's done some good, but I also feel like it's 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 sometimes it's backfiring as well because it gets it gets if it swings too far over, and then people get a little bit uh, disillusioned by it, and they stop believing or paying attention to it. Yeah, well, I think on some of the activities that are that are going on, like say 
ripping down the statues or uh, renaming buildings or schools or what have you. Or, or even the fact that, you know, people, when they're having some type of major event, they have to acknowledge which tribal lands that they're, they're currently on. Um, none of those, in my opinion, at least, I don't think any of those activities really impact Indians who actually live on reserve. You know, we're, like I said, we still don't have clean drinking water. Um, we still have the inequality. You, you know, so we have all these other issues that aren't being addressed by, isn't being addressed by tearing down a statue. Or uh, renaming that's, the school. That's kind of what I'm getting at, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to hear Bud's uh, opinion on that. Well, there's certainly a lot of emotional distress that uh, people, you know, have to release. They, and they're frustrated. And that, you know, the burning of churches, uh, which I do not support. Uh, even the tearing down the statues, I do not support. I mean, uh, they can be educational. There just needs to be another lens added to that. Or another statue beside it, you know, yeah. like that's what I, I kind of been thinking about that lately is like the, you'd beat, you, you can't ban speech. So instead you'd, you'd beat bad speech with more better speech. So instead of taking down statues, we just need to build another statue, maybe beside it or add a plaque to it, add a caveat. So when you come look at the statue, instead of learning nothing, you learn something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they should, yeah, you- John McDonald's quote, uh, the Besides, you know, is the one in Kingston. Uh, I think that would be helpful. And then, you know, provide proper resources for people. Residential schools, uh, there should be, a, 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 I know there's a museum uh, in D.C., uh, but there should be a national museum for about residential schools and telling that, that story. Uh, the education of people, I think, that, that's the benefit, I think, of, of you know, the, the political correctness or the woke culture is that it presents an opportunity to get certain things done that provide uh, an education for for the rest of, of society going forward so that we don't have to go back and, and readdress this. We don't step backwards. We go forward. And, and that that's, I think, helpful. And, and it creates the dialogue from there. We have to have, and I, I'm, you know, I'm a strong believer in the dialogue, but we need two parties to that we've been talking to ourselves for a long time. Um, I guess uh, I don't think you have anything. Do you have anything to promote? A website, anything like that our listeners should check out? No, no I'm just an ordinary guy. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, we're, we're definitely, if, if you'll have us, we'd love to do this again. This is our first episode, and we plan to do uh, hopefully hundreds of these eventually over the years. So hopefully we can have you on again maybe in a few months, and you can see how, we've, how far we've come, if we've come. Yeah, sure. I, absolutely. I'd love to come back and uh, have a, uh, continue the discussion. And again, that's what it is. It's a discussion. So we can educate and inform people. Uh, I think we, you know, we're we're making progress, uh, and that's what the message, uh, the last message I want to leave is: people should educate themselves about the real history uh, of Canada and how we can uh, right some wrongs. Um, let's not sweep it on the rug. Let's not ignore it. Let's address it. Awesome! Thanks for thanks for coming on the show, Bob. We appreciate that. Before we before we wrap up, I guess we should ask our token white guy his takeaways from the episode. Maybe we could make that like a closing segment. What if what a grandma? Oh my god! Today. 
don't put me on the spot anymore. No, it's been a, it's been eye opening again, and it was great to hear Bob's um, or Bud, sorry, Bud's um, thoughts on the Indian Act and and what's really happening. I mean, it's it happened so close to home. Like I grew up in the eighties, and it was it wasn't long. It was when I was a kid. This was still happening, you know, that uh, alcohol, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's like peeling layers of the onion away, you know. I just I I've heard about residential schools for a long time, but just knowing um, now how bad they really were, and it's like it's just sort of opening up layer upon layer of of awareness on this, and it and it's just it's just worse than I thought. Um, I was sort of in the, in a in the bubble, like most people, just not hearing it in the media and, and then not believing what the media says half the time in, in, in my case. Um, so just, just realizing that this is just way, it's way worse than I would have known a few years ago, way worse than I realized. Um, and it's just, I hope that, I hope that, uh, there can be proper conciliation. I like the way an author that I read his book recently calls it conciliation because reconciliation signifies going back to the way it was, which was never a thing. Oh. There's no hope in the past, only in the future. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that was uh, I think that's a good wrap. Thanks for coming on the show, bud. We hope to do this again, again down the road sometime. And uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the chat. Thanks, bud.